ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Muzaffar Ali's first love was soccer. He'd play on the streets when he was a kid in Pakistan and devour old football magazines about the English Premier League. But after he returned to Afghanistan, the country where he was born, Muzaffar discovered a new passion, photography, and he started taking beautiful photos of farmers in the fields, of girls walking to school, and of rocky deserts and snow-covered peaks in the isolated Hazara homelands. In 2015, Muzaffar and his family arrived in Australia as refugees. They settled in Adelaide, a place that seemed so different to anywhere they'd ever lived. So Musafar was astonished to discover that Afghans, like him, had been making their homes in this continent since the 1800s. They first came as cameleers, crisscrossing the deserts of central Australia, accompanying colonial explorers like Burke and Wills, and bringing essential supplies to remote outposts. Some of those Afghan men married local Indigenous women, and their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren still live in places like Lyndhurst and Port Augusta and Broken Hill. So on learning this, Musafar set off into the Australian outback to meet these countrymen and women, with his camera in hand, of course. And the new documentary film Watanda tells this story. Hi, Musafar. Hi, Sarah. Let's start right at the very beginning, Musafar. When were you born? My real date of birth is unknown because my uh, parents, they were uh, illiterate. And in our uh, those villages, we don't record the date of birth. So when I came to Australia, I was given a date of birth on uh, 31st of December in 1986. So I presume that is my date of birth. But yeah, I was born in that small village in Orzgan province. Uh, and that was the time when Afghanistan was grappling with this ongoing civil war between Mujahideen and the communist-backed regime. And my father uh, had two choices. He had to join these uh, Mujahideen ranks or he should leave uh, his village. So he decided to leave and took us to Pakistan, where I spent my early days until my uh, uh, teenage time. So your family are Hazara. Explain to me, what does, what does that mean? What's unique about the Hazara people in Afghanistan? Um, it's very interesting uh, because Afghanistan is a very diverse country where different tribes and uh, ethnic groups live together for centuries so uh, there are four major ethnic groups in Afghanistan, uh, and all of them, I would say, minorities. No one is absolute majority. So we have Pashtuns, Tajiks, Hazara, and Uzbeks. So there are four major main ethnicities in Afghanistan. Uh, what makes Hazaras more distinctive is that we follow Shia Islam in a predominantly Sunni Muslim country in Afghanistan. And we, our facial feature is quite different. Um, our skin color is quite different. So we are very easily recognizable. And we have been, uh, because of our beliefs, religious beliefs, because of our ethnic uh, distinction, we had been persecuted for centuries. So your family, when you were just a little baby escaped into Pakistan, where many other Hazaras were also leaving at that time because of the, the situation in Afghanistan. Tell me about the city you lived in in Pakistan. What was it like? 
Uh, when I opened my eyes and knew myself and surrounding, I, I realized that Koita City, that is the place where I grew up. And that was my world, actually. I never knew my own place. And still to this date, I haven't visited my village where I was born in Orozgan. Um, Koita was a place where uh, in 1990s, it was such a beautiful small city where like in 10 minutes, you could drive from one part of this small city to another part of that city. Uh, we had other ethnic groups like Pashtuns, Baluch and Punjabis and Hazaras. They were living all together. And I was a football fan, football player. So I was playing in the streets. We had friends from different uh, ethnic groups. And that's why well, I could speak different languages from, from those friends and we could communicate. How did your parents make a living as, as refugees in this other country? Initially, my father um, was selling firewoods. Uh, he would buy from uh, the market and buy uh, and sell it uh, in the community so people didn't have uh, gas or electricity and he would even uh, collect these uh, used charcoals uh, from the ashes and he would sell those uh, those those things but eventually he started having a vendor vegetable vendor and then he started to have his own uh, small grocery shop and that was that was what he was doing to survive and to support us as a family. And were you able to go to school? Uh, yes, I did. I um, got basic education up to grade eight. What happened after grade eight? Why didn't you continue? Um, we were poor. We were poor and I was growing up. Uh, my father needed help uh, in his grocery shop. I couldn't go to the higher grades and my father said, okay, I should come and help him in this uh, in the shop. And I think I was very young when I was um, I was in charge of that grocery shop all day. Uh, yeah, uh, that was that was it. Like I, I started my practical life very early. You mentioned your love of soccer and playing soccer on the streets. How did you learn about other sorts of soccer and football outside of Pakistan? Football was very popular in that community in Koita, Hazara. So Hazara Club had a history of football. Uh, before partition in, in Pakistan and India. So Hazaras were living there for a long time. Uh, Hazara Club in Kuwaita, they were uh, one of the prominent uh, football clubs in Pakistan where they were winning uh, championships. And even before partitions, they won Intercontinental Cup. So, uh, yeah, this Hazara community, they were Pakistanis and uh, Afghan refugees. They were all playing together. And I grew up watching these uh, nice players, fine players playing in the community. And that was, I think, quite natural to play with them, alongside them. Some of them became my coach and I was practicing so hard. And it was, I think it was um, 1999 when I was listening to BBC and I was following the success of Manchester United. They did uh, a treble that year. Uh, they won Champions League, Premier League and FA Cup. Is this David Beckham era Manchester United? Absolutely. That was David Beckham era. And I was so, I was complaining from BBC Urdu <laughs> because I was listening to them. I said, you know, BBC looks like it, they are British broadcasting for cricket. It's not, there is no football. Where's the football? <laughs> yeah. So that night, I remember when I was listening, so one of the presenters said, this is for Muzaffar, man, United has won Champions League. Oh, really? Yeah, you got to call out. I was super out. proud of myself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was all about football. And I heard from, uh, from BBC, that was my only news that I could get what's happening uh, outside this Hazara community. We had no internet or television those days. 
So then uh, after that, we had this uh, outdated magazines of football. It's called Match uh, in the market. And people used to sell it as a, as a rubbish. And I would go and buy those magazines. And then I, I saw these police calls. Even I could not pronounce their names properly. I was pronouncing shawl or uh, jigs and... <laughs> Yeah, uh, I even could not pronounce, but uh, I realised they are the best people right now mm. in England. And in those days, how did you imagine Afghanistan, the, the country of your birth, but a place you'd left as a baby? How did you see it in your mind's eye? Uh, the first images of uh, Afghanistan for me were the Bamiyan Buddhas. Uh, on those old calendars from 1988. And, and they were so rare those days, uh, those calendars even. I remember people used to still keep this in 1990s because there was no other photographs and that was uh, resembling what Afghanistan looks like. And I remember uh, these Buddhas were like giant Buddhas and still uh, they were intact, uh, not destroyed by the Taliban. And there were monuments, and that was uh, uh, the picture that I was making in my mind. This is my Afghanistan. This is where I belong. So I was really, like, I couldn't imagine, like, Afghanistan has uh, these beautiful lush valleys or how people look like there. So very unclear and vague ideas uh, or, and images of Afghanistan in my mind there in my were, childhood. There were other calendars, though, very different from those featuring the Banyan Buddhas. Tell me about the jihadi calendars that were around in Pakistan. Yeah, definitely. They were using Banyan uh, images as well. But there were some other calendars with people with gun and the logos. And no matter which jihadi group it is, it has some verse, Quranic verse on their emblem, Kalashnikov or uh, sword, and then word Islam in any part of their organization's name. Um, but they would be using, you know, different people like in the, in the check posts or some fighters in the bunkers. Right. So, Mr. February with the Kalashnikov. Tell me, Mustafa, how a football game that you watched in 2002 helped inspire you to decide to go back to the country of your birth, to Afghanistan. <laughs> this is so... Nice, um, lovely memory. I was having uh, lunch with my mom. Uh, my father was there and America just invaded Afghanistan. Taliban was uh, defeated. So all these coalition forces came and based in Bagram Air Base. And uh, Afghanistan's best football players had a match representing Afghanistan with this uh, NATO forces and coalition forces football team, soccer team. And CNN showed a clip of this, that they, um, uh, the, the match started with beautiful bicycle kick by one uh, Afghan player. And that was so beautiful. I remember those days, uh, CNN had this like moment of the day and that was moment hmm. of the day. When I saw that, I told my mom, I will go and play in Afghanistan. I love it. So I was just, that was my first thought that now I can go because we have football in Afghanistan and I may have opportunities. So tell me about the, the way the situation for you as a Hazara in Pakistan was changing after that US-led invasion of Afghanistan. What was, what was going on in the streets around you after that war began? I would go a little, a little bit back to this question. 
1996, when Taliban were becoming more popular, so Pakistan had a lot of support for the Taliban. Taliban emerged as the group Pakistan could influence and get control over Afghanistan. And we remember that uh, in 1996, when Taliban were getting prominence and they were uh, taking control of different provinces, we saw more and more madrasas, more and more uh, religious schools were created uh, in these streets. More and more Taliban were visible in these Koita streets. And whenever they were having gains and control over more areas, we see more rallies, more chants and more uh, presence. They were everywhere, like they would come to our shop for donation, food. And when they took control of Kabul, I remember they were celebrating this uh, in, in markets and say, yeah, we, we controlled everything. I remember in 1998 when they massacred Hazaras in Mazar-e-Sharif, everyone was celebrating these religious students and they knew we are Hazaras. They considered us as, as infidels. They would come to our shop and say, yeah, we defeated you in Mazar-e-Sharif. And now we are controlling all over Afghanistan. We had this bad, bad experience, very sad experience. Um, but when 9-11 happened, uh, everything flipped. They were defeated. Pakistan had to change their policy. Taliban were defeated. They lost Kabul, but they escaped, actually. They retreated. They were so tactical. Um, this Al-Qaeda leadership came to this north of Pakistan in Waziristan, south and north Waziristan, this Taliban leadership came to Koita in Balochistan, where we were living in mm. that city. So after 9-11, when we supported the American forces, we supported the coalition forces, we became the scapegoat of that support. Um, the Taliban leadership who were living in Koita, the religious extremists, they made us soft target. They killed us. Uh, many of my friends, football teammates, they got killed in those incidents. Uh, in 2003, in one day, I lost my three friends. We played cricket together in football. Uh, in one day, they got killed. Um, they were not alone, actually. Twelve people were there, and three of them were my friends. And there was another big incident um, in, in a mosque. Uh, Fifty-three people got killed by two suicide attackers. My one friend was there in that mosque. And then in 2004, I was just, just 100 meters away from that suicide blast when they attacked a religious procession of the Hazaras. So that was the time in 2004 I said, it's getting worse. And then I decided to go to Afghanistan. And so you decided it would be safer for you to, to travel back to your homeland, to Afghanistan. How did you get there, Musafa? What was that journey like? Um, that was a very scary journey for me, to be honest, because I didn't have any any image of Afghanistan. Those days, the mainstream media would show us, you know, destro destroyed Afghanistan, the CNN and BBC and all those mainstream medias, the fighting and destruction. But when uh, I took a decision to go, uh, that morning, I remember I was crying because that was the first time I was traveling alone. And taking this big journey, I'm going into unknown. And what will happen, I didn't know. And how old were you? I was, I think, 18 that time when I left. So when I crossed this border, honestly, I still remember that fresh air I felt. That town is called Spin Boldak. I, I grabbed this truck. It was crossing this Pakistan-Afghanistan border, which is really fluid. A lot of people can cross it without... Uh, without any visa or documentation. So 
when I re-arrived in this uh, border town, I grabbed this truck and I crossed this border into Afghanistan. I know this big difference between these two borders. No destruction here in Pakistan side, but I could see all these buildings destroyed, no roads. Um, but still I remember that freshness, that freedom I felt in that town. Because when I, when I jumped out, there was a policeman sitting there and I was so happy. He's not going to say and tell me who you are and where are you going because I was back in my country. Mm. So that was a really good experience for me. And I traveled to Kabul from there. And then on to Bamiyan, where those giant statues of the Buddha had been, as you, as you described, remembering seeing images of them. This is really at the, the heartland of the Hazara community or, or homeland in Afghanistan. What was it like to arrive there in Bamiyan? Oh, Bamiyan uh, journey, uh, when we decided to go to Bamiyan with my friends, I remember I could not sleep that night. Um, we had to start our journey from Kabul very early in the morning. And the roads were very in a bad condition. So there was no proper road those days. So all night I was just waiting when we are leaving. So when we um, started our journey, it took us 14 hours from Kabul to Bamiyan, just maybe I think 70 kilometers. But the time we arrived, I was thinking maybe there would be enough light to see Bamiyan Buddhas. I want to see that Bamiyan Buddha, which I all my life I imagined how it looks like. But it was too dark that, that, that night when I arrived. And I, I woke up several times at night and I was thinking, when it's going to be morning and I will go and see Bamiyan Buddha. And I could not imagine that I'm back into this, uh, this heartland of uh, our ancestors. Uh, but by that time when I arrived, um, that was 2005, they were all totally destroyed. But then I was just sitting there and I, I, I was going and sitting in the caves and just pretending that, Probably I'm sitting 1,000 years ago. I'm one of the monks and how life looks like in this Bamiyan Valley. Amazing experience for me. You had told your mom, Musafa, that you were going to go to Afghanistan and play football. Did you start playing in Bamiyan? <laughs> I played in Bamiyan, definitely. One of the first things I did, um, I played for uh, the UN team, United Nations football team. And they were the, uh, the worst team in Bamiyan. <laughs> Did um, you help out? Did you improve their, their chances? I think we won a couple of matches, <laughs> but uh, drew a few of them, but still we lost because, uh, yeah. Um, but the best thing I was, uh, I was getting from there that they had this Manchester United shirt. And that was the first time I was wearing a Man United shirt in my life. So I was really proud to play with them. Through, through joining the UN Football Club, you, you were offered a job working with the UN and you had different roles with them. But in one of, those, uh, one, of, one of the tasks that the UN got you to do was to go off into the villages of central Afghanistan. You were still a very young man, but what was your responsibility? What did you need to do? Honestly, I was like saying yes to every opportunity I could get in Afghanistan. I was uh, feeling I'm home and I wanted to do something. And UN job was the first thing. And I was thinking I'm so privileged and lucky that I got this job. And they said, can you go to the Kundi province? Honestly, I didn't know what the Kundi province is. Where is it? I said, yes. And he said, do you want to coordinate this program? It's called DIAC dispensement of illegal armed groups, um, part of the UNDP's program. I said, yes. And honestly, I had no clue what this program is about. 
So let, later on, I realized this, this disbandment is actually disarmament of illegal armed groups. And uh, the government had to take lead to disarm these commanders who were supposed to be illegal and they had plenty of weapons with them and ammunitions. And I, I, when I went to the Kundi province, I realized how strong these commanders are and how corrupt these government officials are. So they wouldn't directly engage with these commanders and they would send me for negotiation. Oh. And I was 18 and I was talking to these uh, commanders and taking list of their weapons. And sometimes uh, government officials were giving me uh, the information that, OK, now you go and talk to them. So that was pretty massive task to do. And incredibly and I- dangerous. What happened to your car <laughs> on your first, in your first week on the job? In the first week of the job, my car was hit by the Taliban's IED in Maidan Wardak province. I was coming from Kabul to Bamiyan uh, after my uh, induction in the UN's uh, office. And uh, honestly, in that place, uh, I was underestimating uh, Afghanistan because I was away all my life from Afghanistan. So my drivers was driving very fast. I said, can you hold on and slow down? We are not in rush. We have plenty of time. He said, Muzaffar, you don't know this, uh, this place. This is really dangerous. I said, oh, this is now we have 43 countries in Afghanistan. We have Americans. We have a uh, new democratic government. Don't worry. No, no, we cannot take risk. And that's when, like, um, there was a crater and he slowed down and there was a bank. A bank. And I was just, first thing, because it was not a first incident in my life. I saw these uh, suicide attacks in Pakistan, the dead bodies. And that was the time I was just sitting still and said, am I alive or not? Uh, what happened? And I was just trying to comprehend what happened in our surrounding. Then all these pebbles and rocks dropping on our car. So I, I was looking at my driver and he was like looking at me and said, see, what, what did I tell you? <laughs> oh my goodness. That's a hard lesson to learn that way. It was a welcome to Afghanistan for me. What did you buy with your first pay packet from the UN? I received my first salary after two months. So $500 was my, my salary. So I received 1000 So I gave, uh, I think, three, 400 to my mom and father and 500 for my camera and 100 for my pocket money. 500 for your camera? 500 Tell me about this camera. this camera. Why did you decide to buy a camera? Um, my job was uh, really good for me to go into remote areas. And um, when I was traveling to these areas, I said, I never saw this in those calendars, in the mainstream media. Uh, for me, as a, as a new, like a, a returnee, repat- patriotic to Afghanistan, this is, this is the best image I can see. And digital media was becoming uh, something. Uh, social media was becoming more popular. So I, I bought this uh, digital camera, 5.1 megapixel, very basic point-and-shoot camera, and started taking pictures. And, and what images had struck you? What did you want to show that you hadn't seen while you were living outside of Afghanistan? Uh, several elements. One, the remoteness, the uh, natural beauty of those places with their tradition and culture, untouched by globalization. There were some areas where we went with our truck. The kids never saw a truck and vehicle in their life. So I was I was very keen to save those moments because mm. I knew it, they're going to open. We may lose some of this traditional life uh, down the years. 
and I was trying to take as many pictures as I could uh, from this beautiful life. The, the only thing I was really struck was uh, how jihad and cold war impacted people's life. In those places where the kids never saw a car in their life, when I pointed the, the camera towards them, they thought it's a gun. Oh, they didn't know a truck, but they knew a gun. They knew a gun. I, I went to some of these villages where kids didn't have shoes to wear, didn't have proper clothes and warm clothing to wear in winter season. But in that village, we could find these big rockets, uh, machine guns, anti-aircraft guns, and like loads of ammunition. And I was just thinking, they couldn't definitely couldn't buy these weapons. Someone transferred these weapons into these, these communities mm. and they killed each other with those weapons. So I was really happy because I was contributing to take these weapons and give it to the government, uh, you know, to clean this, this community, to clean these villages. And these kids were, I remember, they were so, so innocent when we talk in, about education and about future. They were all hopeful about, about, about new life, you know. Um, I remember some of these kids never saw a, a market in their life. They came to see what market looks like. In Afghanistan, there are just a couple of shops. Um, yeah, my first camera was really important for me to shoot those images and share this to, uh, on social media. In those days, it was MySpace. And I had received a lot of attention, particularly at that time, Khalid Husseini just published his first novel, The Kite Runner, where he depicts this uh, Afghanistan's modern history where the Hazara servant was um, become a victim of uh, some some bad people in Kabul. And that novel was a best-selling novel. And a lot of people, when they were searching about Hazaras, they would come up with my photos. And I'm, I'm proud, like I was one of the first uh, younger generation of Afghans taking camera to tell our stories in Afghanistan after 9-11. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Musafa, you had returned to Afghanistan when the coalition forces were there trying to get rid of the Taliban and you were working with the United Nations. In one of those Hazara villages that you were visiting with the UN and taking photographs, you saw a beautiful young woman. In Hazara culture, what's the next step? (laughs) Yeah, in one of those visits, I saw my wife. I met her. Uh, and I loved her with uh, the first sight in Miramore district. So I told my mom, I love this girl. So, yeah, we cannot talk directly to the girl. Um, the parents do the deal and it's called proposal or khastagari. So I asked my mom, uh, can you please go and uh, ask for me? Wait, was your mom still in Pakistan at this point? No, she was with me. Oh, she time. was with you. Yeah. So... I told her to go and my mom and my father went to the village, met the uh, the parents. And I think that was really an uh, easy process for them. We got engaged very quickly in a couple of weeks. 
and we had our engagement uh, and then yeah our my i would say my that was the beautiful most beautiful decision of my life or our life start our life together and what was the wedding celebration like very simple very simple where uh, some of the villagers came uh, mullah came and he read nikah which is the religious ceremony to legalize our uh, marriage but simple meal a lot of you know sincerity from the communities my uh, my siblings were there yeah that was very simple but that was a big start of my life mm. did you take lots of photos musafa yeah yeah <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I, I took photos. Uh, I asked people to take photos, but yeah, uh, I was just sitting there as a as a groom, uh, <laughs> honestly. So this was this lovely start, as you say, of your adult life, you and your wife, and then you you had your first daughter together. So things were very beautiful for you, but things in your country in Afghanistan were deteriorating again by this point. Tell me about what happened on a, on a trip to Kabul in 2012. Yeah, my kid was Natika. She was two years old. Uh, we were traveling to Kabul and in Maidan Wardak province, this young uh, Taliban covering his face with a Kalashnikov. He was um, standing on the one side of the road and I was on a Toyota Corolla car with three other passengers and a driver. I was the only Hazara in that car and my wife. So... The Taliban stopped our car and he looked into this window and said, where are you going? Like instantly he was directing to me and I was feeling so sad because why me? Because I look different and he, they know because we, we are Hazara. We look different and we are working with the government. We support government. We support international community. And he was right. I said, my daughter is sick and I'm going to the hospital. And I, that's one thing I learned in the UN. Keep calm in that situation. We got trainings for those situations. And he didn't say anything and he uh, said, yeah, you can go. So your UN training helped you keep calm. But what about your wife? How scary was that for her? She was trembling. She was trembling and crying. Uh, and that was the first time... In our uh, married life, I saw her so scared. And I was feeling that time because my father just died a few months ago. Um, and I was the only, like in Afghanistan, I was the only man working for the family. It was my uh, wife, my daughter, my mom and my sister. So my brother was very young. Uh, I was thinking, okay, what if they could identify me as, as a person working with the UN, with the Americans, um, then they could kill me. What's going to happen with these four women in Afghanistan? So she was crying and the same day we decided uh, to leave Afghanistan. That time I was working to make a documentary film with an American filmmaker that time. And I immediately I came to Kabul and sent an email. I said, I'm really sorry. I cannot work anymore in Afghanistan. So I'm leaving. So I packed everything the next day I came to Pakistan again. Could you bring your photographs with you, Musafa? That was one of the things I was uh, uh, really aware of, definitely. I kept all my photographs in, in a hard drive and I put this into a sleeping bag and rolled this and put this in the luggage. 
And I was just thinking, hopefully uh, they wouldn't open the sleeping bag and this is in the luggage. So anyway, I, I smuggled my, um, my hard drive with us. And that was the biggest treasure for me to come out of Afghanistan. So you made it safely with your family back to Pakistan, but the situation there had become even more dangerous. There were many bombings in the Hazara community just after you arrived. So what did you propose to your family? What did you suggest that you should decide to do? I I brought all my family members, my mother, sister. I said, this is not the same Pakistan we lived for many years. Uh, We cannot go back to Afghanistan. We have to go somewhere safe. And they agreed. I said, trust me, we will go somewhere. Promise me you will uh, be patient because refugee life would be difficult again. And we may not have a shelter, maybe not enough food. We don't know where we end up. You know, you were you were undocumented refugees in Pakistan. How did you even leave Pakistan in the first place? We made uh, fake documents. Uh, my daughter... In, in those fake documents, uh, there was a mistake. My daughter became a boy. She was a girl. And um, when we talked to that person who arranged those documents for us, we paid him money to get out of Pakistan. When he made these documents, I said, oh, look, my, my daughter is boy. He said, don't worry, who cares about that? So we had to dress her up with, uh, with uh, boys' uh, dresses uh, up to Malaysia through those documents. We went through all these immigration counters Malaysia and from Malaysia by boat we came to Indonesia. So by, by boat. Came, so yeah. tell me about arriving in Indonesia and in Indonesian waters. What was that experience? Uh, it was um, it was night uh, when we were uh, uh, crossing this Malakai Strait from Kuala Lumpur to uh, Medan. We were crossing this uh, Malakai Strait, which is four hour um, speedboat uh, sailing. So we arrived near the shores of Indonesia where our boat sank. And uh, I was with my wife, my sister-in-law and my daughter. So my wife and sister-in-law, they were big enough. They were supporting each other. But my daughter was uh, very small and I was keeping her over my head just to save her. And that was one of the uh, difficult nights for me when I was thinking about our future. Mm -hmm. And I was reflecting back to my... um, family and my ancestors that the way they were displaced and my daughter as fifth generation of displacement in this middle of the night and trying really hard to keep our life uh, like keep alive and save our dreams Uh, and she was so small uh, so young all night she couldn't sleep and that morning when uh, when our boat sank she wouldn't make a noise make make a cry she was just staring like this and I was so shocked to see, like, why she's not crying. Why she's she's definitely scared. And that moment was really important for me to keep her dream alive. I will do whatever I can do to save her life. So it it was such a perilous journey that you made from Pakistan to Malaysia, and then arriving finally in Indonesia and making it safely out of the water that night. But then you were in this kind of limbo, not legally allowed to work or or to send your kids to school in Indonesia. And this was when you met an Australian man. What part does he come to play in your story? Um, Yeah, uh, the process in Indonesia is that uh, once I arrived, I go to UNHCR office 
and they give uh, gave me a letter that I should come back after three months. So after three months, they gave me uh, a, a paper which declares that I'm an asylum seeker. So asylum seeker means that my case is not assessed. So maybe I will be rejected or accepted as proper refugee. And that's called refugee status determination process. Um, and then I think after six months, I got my interview. I was accepted as proper refugee. So it means that I passed one test. I proved that my life is in danger in Afghanistan. So the next phase is to find a durable solution for me, which is resettlement. So this is a bit tricky. Resettlement is uh, a solution, but not all of the refugees get this solution. 25 million refugees live around the world, but just less than 1% refugees get resettlement. And uh, it doesn't mean that if I am accepted as refugee, I will be resettled and there is no uh, time frame for that. So yeah, I got refugee status. Anyway, uh, when I uh, was going to register to UNHCR, I was in Jakarta. So this Australian man, when I came back home, that's what my sister said. You know, today we had a guest. I said, which guest? He gave me a card, Julian Hoff, filmmaker. And there was a telephone number and his email address. So I called him. I said, oh, you came to my home. He said, oh, yeah, I'm an Australian filmmaker. I just met your family and I will come back to Chisarwa. This is where we were living. I will come back to Chisarwa. Uh, so I will be in touch with you. And why had he visited? So his story is very interesting. So he was traveling with his wife because his wife was working with the uh, World Bank and they were in Jakarta. The time I arrived, I think they were also deployed. They, they came to Jakarta. So he, because he was a filmmaker, he said, I never met a refugee in my life. So he had an dr Indonesian driver and said he searched on Internet uh, where these refugees live and he found out it's Chisarwa. 70 kilometers outside Jakarta. So he took his driver and came to Chisarwa, this, uh, this uh, hilly side, green place. And then, according to him, he says this beautifully, left-hand turn, <laughs> there is a fork and there is a bend. And then his driver said, there is a refugee. <laughs> so he comes out of the car and he meets Hassan, who was my cousin. Then Hassan, because he didn't know uh, English, so he said, okay, you should come in. So my sister met with Julian. So Julian asked all those questions like, are you going to boat, taking boat, going to Australia? How many people have left? Who are you? And these questions. So at the end, when my sister gave him uh, some tea and he finishes his questions, so my sister says, who you are? So he says, I'm a filmmaker. And then my sister said, oh, you have to meet my brother. He's a photographer. So that's how we met, actually, what in Indonesia. What a chance. What an extraordinarily chance meeting for the both of you. I, I often joke, I tell Julian, what if you turned right? You know, exactly. you didn't turn left, but turned right. So everything how, would be so different. How do you make sense of it, <laughs> Musafa? How do you explain the, the chance of that? Is it just chance? I think it is such a coincidence, you know. Um, Jalaluddin Balkhi, the... Um, Persian poet, he said, you know, Khandaha dar giriyaha amat katim, ganj dar viranaha ju aisalim, which translated in English that within tears find laughter, uh, seek treasures amid ruins, sincere ones. 
you know, for other people, we are in limbo in this uh, in hopeless situation. But there are treasures uh, in these situations. We just need to see and collect them. We found our treasures in Afghanistan, in uh, Indonesia. We don't know how. But, you know, this is what it is. We are good friends. I tell Julian, you know, you are my family now. You are my brother. And we are working together now for 10 years. Tell me a little about the work that you have done together because Jolian and his wife encouraged you to start a school for, for your kids, which you did with other refugees. So when I came to Indonesia, when these refugees were scared because Australia was um, imposing all these strict uh, rules and uh, restrictions over refugees, no one would say hi to each other. So when we were talking to refugees, I was telling to my friend, I said, it's really hard to live in this situation. We need community. We need our support in this situation. And then we, when we became friends with Jolian, they said, you know, we support you what, whatever you do. What would you do like in, in, in five years, in 10 years when, when you are stuck in Indonesia? They encouraged us. So when I was talking to refugees, uh, they said, you know, we don't have right to teach. We don't have right to get education. So we cannot do anything. So one thing in my mind was that we are just refugees. We are seeking asylum, which is our right, and education is also our right. So that support came from Julian's side. They gave us $200 a month, and uh, we sent many letters to UNHCR. Please advise us. Can we do it or not? Secondly, we want to partner with you. We have interpreters. We have teachers. We have doctors. If you want to do some activities, we have all these skilled uh, refugees. Uh, we didn't receive any response from them. So one day I was sitting at home uh, and I counted how many kids do we have in our streets, the refugees, they don't go to school, including my daughter. They were 14. And I, I talked to my sister, my wife and my sister-in-law. I said, if tomorrow these 14 kids come to our home, are you ready to teach them? They said, yes. And that was the start of our uh, activities. So my friend with his uh, two daughters and uh, a woman from Jakarta whose husband died uh, on boat towards Australia. Yeah, they, they all were women. They said, we will take that risk. We will teach, you know, no matter what happens. And I really admire their courage. In Afghanistan, these women are overlooked, their courage and their role in society. And they proved their worth. They proved their agency in this situation. Now that school is running for 10 years. These women who, who became teachers, some of them became the managers of the school. And they became the community leaders of, of, of the refugees there. But for your family, Musafa, after two and a half years in Indonesia, mm. you were accepted into Australia on a humanitarian visa. What was it like? to get that news and to be able to share it with your family? Oh, um, I will go back to that, our boat sinking in Malakai Strait. And then I was thinking, now my daughter has a future. This fifth generation is the fifth generation, not the sixth generation of displaced people. Uh, we thought, yeah, we are accepted in Australia. This is the best country. We can live the rest of our life. This is our home. I remember on 25th of June in 2015, when we entered in, in Sydney airport, this immigration man, he stamped on our papers and said, welcome to Australia. 
God knows how good feeling was that. We were welcomed for the first time in our life, not even in our country in Afghanistan, we were welcomed. We were treated with bombs and discrimination and racism. And here we were accepted. So that was very special feeling. And from that day, 25th of June, till now, we don't take Australia for granted. Mm. This is our home. How strange did some of Australia seem to you, though? <laughs> what, what stood out to you? You made your home in Adelaide. What was what were some of the oddest things about this new place? <laughs> you, uh, it's it's very different uh, from Afghanistan. Um, we came from small villages, no roads, no um, you know ATMs or banks or you know uh, that's a totally different life. But when we come here, it's a structured place. You have to wait to cross the road, tax return and all those bureaucratic things uh, we had to do. For me, it's a hard job to adopt our life in Australia. From that world to here, um, I'm educated. I am, uh, it's not like, yes, I came in Australia first time, but Australia, we saw Australia's images. It's not like Afghanistan during jihad time. But we knew Australia is a developed country. But living there is such something different. Anyway, it took us a long time to adopt our life. And we're still learning, you know, uh, about society, about everything. How did you first hear about this long history of Afghan cameleers in Australia? And what was it like to hear that? Um, first time I learned about this um, from the friends' conversation. There are some um, really brilliant uh, researchers uh, that I heard. Uh, Pamela is one of them, that she has done a lot of research on the cameleers, but I never met any of them. So for me, that was just, they were just stories. Um, but I, I got in touch with them when uh, the Afghan ambassador, Wahidullah Waisi, wanted to uh, celebrate 160th anniversary of the first Afghan cameleer in Australia. So Julian and I, again, we went to him and said, we want to be part of this celebration. And uh, I said, I want to be, I want to photograph this, this whole event. So he was so generous and said, yes, why not? And we met with Pamela for the first time. She was really generous. She is uh, outstanding. She knows all those family members, their history, their locations, she was helping us on every step. And I met them in first in Adelaide, some of them. Uh, I was so nervous uh, how, how I could be received with my camera as a, as a Hazara, as a newcomer from Afghanistan. But when I entered in this room, when I was talking on uh, face-to-face, on one-to-one, I see this friendship and connection. I would introduce myself. Yeah, I, I came here from Afghanistan. I'm Hazara. And nice to meet you. And the same, the same warmth and friendship I could see from them. So for me, that was kind of like very nice experience and encouraging. Yes, I can, I can meet them, you know. And they were, uh, they were so hospitable. They invited me to their homes. And they spent time with us. And we had meal together. Anyway, I found them very hospitable. Uh, and some characteristics from Afghanistan I could see still in, like what? in them. Um, one part of their home is always dedicated for their ancestors, for their identity as Camelier descendants. And, uh, you know, also uh, a lot of them have uh, Aboriginal connections. 
So I could see these camels, the monuments and their uh, old photographs of their uh, ancestors. And they would proudly show you, this is Auntie Mim, this is their uncles and their childhood photos, those black and white. They would share these stories. And the storytelling, hospitality, this is very distinct characteristic from the uh, Afghanistan villages that I experienced in Afghanistan. And then I was seeing this in Australia. <laughs> it's so generous of them. And where else did you travel once you started making connections with the descendants of Afghan cameleers? Uh, I met them in Adelaide first. And then we went to Port Augusta. Uh, then uh, we visited the cemetery where the Afghan section. And then Lindhurst, Mari, Farina, where a lot of uh, Afghan cameleers um, lived once. Now it's a ghost town. But we went to Broken Hill as well to meet uh, Bobby Shamroz, Aminullah, and his wife, Janet. We met Frank, Lenny, Irene, uh, all these uh, cameleer descendants. They were amazing people in this uh, these different locations. And the film that you have made out of this is called Watanda. What does it mean? Uh, Watan means uh, country. Uh, Watandar is countryman. Uh, so Watandar is a, a special word because millions of uh, Afghans, uh, they got displaced. And we look for that, those connections wherever we go. Can we see our Watandar? Can we see our countrymen somewhere so that we could connect? So the first thing, because we don't know from which ethnicity or whatever, but when we say hi, so we say, Salam Watandar, Chitoraste, Khubaste, like Watandar is the first connecting word for us. Yeah, we are from the same country. We have the same identity. So Watandar is that connection that we come from Afghanistan and we try to connect ourselves. So I would say the Camelier descendants are actually our Watandar who came here through their ancestors, they have this connection from Afghanistan as well. So in this new home that you've made with your wife and, and now your two daughters and other country people from Afghanistan that you've connected with, I guess the final piece of the puzzle we need to know is, have you got an Australian soccer team? Oh, yeah, I played for um, a few soccer teams. Uh, uh, right now I play for University of South Australia soccer team. And that's where I study as well. Are they doing better than the UN team? Do oh, they're they... much better. <laughs> <laughs> they're much better team. So we have a very, um, a very diverse group of players from, you know, Egypt, from uh, Morocco, from Congo, and then uh, from Serbia, Italians and Greeks. Uh, they all come together and we have fun time. You know, we, we, we compete in our match day. But uh, in our training, we are good friends. It's lovely. Masafa, it's been such an honour to meet you and hear your story. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure and an honour to be with you. Musafa Ali was my guest on Conversations today and Musafa and his Australian filmmaking colleague Joylan Hoff are travelling all around the country at the moment showing their film Watanda and we'll link to the details of that at the Conversations website. A big thanks this week as always to the Conversations team. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.